You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This afternoon's reading comes from Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when, her, when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. God, we are thankful for your word. And we pray that even if the world be against you, against your people, and against your word without cause, we ask that you would please help our hearts to stand in awe of your words. Please cause us to re- rejoice when we hear and understand and trust your word more. Like one who finds a great and undeserved treasure. Lord, cause us to hate falsehoods more today than we did before. and Love your law and your word more than we did Before, cause us now to praise you for your righteous rules. Lord, give us great peace as we we love your law, knowing that when we do, nothing can make us stumble. Help us to hope for your salvation, O Lord, and in your commandments, place our hope. Cause our souls, we pray, to keep your testimonies and to love them exceedingly. Help us to keep your precepts and testimonies, knowing that all our ways are known to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This house is getting pretty full here on site. That's encouraging. Um, thank you all for being here. My name is Clint. What a year it has been so far. My goodness. Who could have imagined a year like this? Who could have imagined a pandemic? Who could have imagined almost 10 million infections worldwide? At least that we know of, right? Some say it could be 10 times that many at this point. Who could have imagined almost half a million image bearers dead around the world in just over six months? No one could have imagined this anti-life wave this anti-creation, this anti-health wave that we're experiencing as a, as, a, as a world. Not to mention the negative economic 
wave of the shutdown, millions upon millions of jobs lost, trillions upon trillions of dollars moving one way or the other with, with, with probably permanent consequences for our nation and the world. And what about all those other deeply troubling events so far this year? Brutal killings by police officers, raging riots, destroying property and lives. What about the headlines that we're missing because every other one is COVID and every other one is racial unrest? What about Christians being targeted throughout the world? There's an uh, organization called Open Doors and they have a watch list. And this is what they say about the last year. Over 250 million Christians are currently living under high persecution in the world today. In the past year, 2,983 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. 9,500 Christian buildings were attacked and damaged or destroyed on purpose. 3,700 Christians were detained, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned without a trial. As the nation's rage and nature groans, the rains refuse to come, causing water shortages, forcing folks in Africa to sleep overnight in the line so that they might be assured of water in the morning. Wildfires torching the Amazon forest in Brazil late last year and, and much of Australia this year, while at the same time other regions have too much rain, leading to landslides and dangerous flooding that takes life. It's tempting for us, isn't it, to see a headline after headline of bad news and worse news and let the endless possibilities of our own imaginations and the peril that comes there spin out of control in our hearts and minds, imagining the unimaginable for ourselves or for our loved ones or others. We forget who we belong to. We forget who God is for us. It's also tempting to just take a side and blame the other side, right? Blame a political party for all the problems, even the ones that seem to be stemming from nature. They could just fix those problems and we'd be all better. To falsely put our hope in different political systems and people to correct them, especially in an election year, that temptation is very, very high for every one of us. It's tempting to find our camp, to defend it at all costs, to falsely imagine that they have all the solutions perfectly thought out and ready to execute them wonderfully for our good. But the Psalms, they won't let us stay there. Today I want to direct our hearts and minds to this 46th Psalm. Perhaps you've heard it before. Be still and know that I am God. Perhaps it's on a Perhaps it's on your coffee mug or, or a calendar that you have that's beautiful. We're going to rip it off that calendar. We're going to rip it off that mug. We're going to put it back in this context, and we're going to try and understand it better and, and apply it more in our lives. For God's people, across the ages, the Psalms have provided some of the richest, most beloved passages from Scripture. They express a wide variety of emotions, rawly, and truth, life-changingly including love and adoration toward God and sorrow for personal and corporate sin, deep and abiding dependence on God in desperate situations, this fight between fear and faith, 
uh, this walking with God constantly through ways that seem dark and dangerous, this abiding thankfulness for God's care even in the midst of those times, and this confident and eventual triumph over uh, in God's purposes throughout the world. So I ask you, has your, has your friend or your spouse or family member been unfaithful to you, to the Lord? Has, have you or your loved one's health taken a turn for the worse this year? Has the pandemic or social injustice or social isolation brought you to the brink? As troubling as the death tolls are, and as dangerous as earthly disasters are, and as dark as our personal situations are, the psalmist is calling us to consider something unimaginably worse than all the things we've ever experienced, actually. It's also calling us to an unimaginable faith, perhaps, that we've never experienced before in this unimaginably powerful, loving, and wise God who offers to save us and keep us. So let's dig deep and see for ourselves in Psalm 46 what God has for us and what he has for the world. This psalm breaks up quite nicely into three sections, three different stanzas. Um, The first one, we see that we are, as God's people, to trust even in turmoil. Then we'll see that we are promised peace in his presence. And finally, we'll see that he calls for that peace to be extended to every edge of this earth. So first, verses 1 through 3, calling us to trust even in turmoil. Or, or trusting God when everything fails. Everything we think we rely upon fails. And the psalmist does mean everything here. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So when God made the world, he used his power to establish a stable environment for human beings. We call this place earth, and we ought to be thankful for it. He established an orderly earth by making and enforcing boundaries for this chaotic and dangerous, this deadly water. Aren't you glad that the oceans have boundaries? I am not a big fan of the ocean. I know some of you are, and good for you, but... Unless it's this really shallow lagoon with some really strong promises of no undercurrents and no large creatures ready to bite my leg clean off, then I really don't want to have anything to do with the ocean. And I think if you look into history and you look into the Bible, you'll find it's a very dangerous thing that we ought to stay away from. Treacherous undercurrents, ways that dash the greatest ships man can make into pieces. You can miss me with that mess. Another psalm, Psalm 104, celebrates that God rebuked these waters. That's what I'm talking about. He stood above the mountains and at the sound of his thunder, those waters, they took flight. Bottom line, God bosses these chaotic and dangerous waves around for us and for our good and those ways listen and they obey but we know how the scriptures unfold we know that in genesis 3 there's a fall there's sinfulness enters man adam and eve they break god's command and they break 
this, this order of, of, of God's good bossing of the water around. These boundaries are no longer honored perfectly under his curse. The earth is dangerous. It's deadly to live in. Perhaps the most deadly element is this water, this, this huge body of water, these oceans, these seas, even these lakes. We see in the story of Noah, where the floodwaters threatened to undo creation completely by bringing these chaotic waters back over the mountains, drowning the entire earth, and everyone in it who would not turn toward God. And here now in Psalm 46, the psalmist challenges us to consider another worldwide flood. I've actually thought about this and dwelt upon Psalm 46 and thought, you know, it'd probably come from the west, I guess, if the waters were rising. But it could come from the east, depending on where the geography works. It could even come over the Sandias. Can you imagine seeing water cover the Sandias from the other side? I mean, how much time would you have to say goodbye, to pray to the Lord, to Wrap up your affairs relationally. So water comes. It drowns us, Andy. Is it's going to drown us too? But commanding those waters to take their place was central to creating the stable environment. Right here in the first section of Psalm 46, the song writer is saying that even if, even if creation was uncreated right before our eyes, we will not be afraid. The water were coming over the Sandias, I'd be afraid. I think we'd all admit we would be afraid. But we're called to something higher, something better, right here. Even if all stability in our environment seemed to vanish in the blink of an eye, we're being called to not fear. Why? Why? Because there is someone who is more fearful. There is someone who is more powerful even than the wave that is coming at us. He is our refuge. He is our protector. God is our strength. My strength would feel particularly, particularly weak and unable and incapable of processing that flood. And yet God is perfectly able. And he is present. He is not far away. He is here with us us. He is for us. He's ready to protect. He's ready to provide what we need, even in that moment. And if then that moment, then every other moment that we experience. He is not indifferent to us, his people. He cares for us. He desires to protect us from that which will destroy us. And this was true of Noah, particularly when God instructed him to build the ark. And it's true for all of God's people of all time. For those who trust in him, our perfect ark, saving us from the floodwaters. But maybe you're thinking that the Jews of the Old Testament, God's people, and, and Christians today, we just covered a lot of them, still suffer and still die, both of natural consequences and accidental causes and just evil causes. What kind of saving ark is that? Seems the floodwaters are still getting God's people. Does this mean that God is not their refuge and strength? Or maybe, maybe the psalm should really say God is our refuge and strength until he's not. He's our present help in trouble until he decides to leave us in our weakness and then he is not. We have to remember that we have not been promised a healthy and long physical life. In fact, 
because of the introduction of sin into the world and the the fall of mankind and the judgment of God, this world is broken. It's hostile toward people. It's unsafe for us, frankly. And physical death is inevitable for each and every one of us. God is not promising this unending um, protection against physical death. If he gives it, if he gives health, if he gives ongoing, even supernatural protection, we should, we should be thankful. We should worship him, trust him, praise him. But if not, we should be thankful. We should worship him, trust him, and praise him. The psalmist isn't putting some sort of pie-in-the-sky false hope into our hearts by, by singing this song and calling us to sing this song. Not giving us some false hope of of surviving the unimaginable. This reversal of creation, this total collapse of Earth's created fabric. No, no one survives the event that he's describing. No one survives the event we are all participating in right now. You know that, right? No one survives life, ultimately. Everyone must face physical death. So this cannot be a promise to avoid that. Literally when the ocean is drowning the mountains and when death continues to drown out humanity over and over. The real question is not, not, um, does anyone survive this process, but rather what becomes of us after it and how are we sustained in hope and joy in it? What's on the other side of this creation? And how can we live inside this creation knowing that? Do we have a hope beyond this fallen world? The psalmist says, of course we do. This first stanza of the song is reminding us that even if the world ends, we as God's people should not fear. If this is true for God's people, as earth itself collapses around us, how much more true if lesser troubles Come our way. The business that fails. The relationship that crumbles. The disease that spreads. The loved one who suffers. Or eventually dies. We must remember. That we are both culpable for. And subject to. God's curse on this earth and that because of sin we are continually subjected to this dangerously fallen world so suffering is inevitable I hope that's not news to you I hope no one has ever preached to you the false gospel that as you that as you trust in him he will remove all suffering from your life it's just not true we're called to embrace suffering as part of this world and part of the fallenness and part of how he subjected it in hope and we are to move forward without Fear. I should imagine walking into a building. Perhaps you've heard this analogy before, but you walk into a building and the first thing you notice, well, is nothing. It's just a hallway with doors in it. But then you hear this woman crying out in utter pain and agony. Your first thought is she is being harmed or she is desperately ill, perhaps even on the brink of death. But then you notice a sign that says you're at a hospital. So at least there's this tinge of of, of hope, like maybe she'll be okay. Maybe someone's helping her. Maybe someone's going to save her. 
And you keep walking. The sound gets louder and louder. And then you notice you're actually in the maternity ward. Just that reality and truth that shows you that life is coming through the pain. Something new is coming despite the pain. Even, even, even through this pain. And because of this pain to some degree. Changes how you interpret the screams and the pain that you're hearing. So I ask you, Christian, how are you interpreting the painful screams of this world? The injustice of this world? The death in this world? How are you interpreting it? Are you walking around as if you don't know what's going on and you don't know what's coming? Or are you letting the reality that something new is coming and someone who makes that new thing come is working? Does that dictate how we feel and how we think as Christians? We've been adopted into God's family through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, these are our words. Paul says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's us. For we know that the whole creation has been what? Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Being family members of God and knowing that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we can trust that this world has been subjected to futility in hope by a loving and good and wise God. So when that business fails, there is hope beyond business. When the relationship crumbles, there is hope beyond that relationship. When the disease spreads or the loved one dies, there is hope beyond what we're experiencing or what we're watching others experience. This is what it means to rightly interpret the groaning we experience and the groaning we see in the world. The original creation did not have killer waves of wars and disease and disaster and death. And on the last day, when Christ returns, creation will be transformed and freed from every effect of sin. And it will instantly become far more beautiful and productive and perfectly safe to live in for all who trust in him. In this face of utter chaos that we watch or we experience, we must remember always that our weaknesses and sin are being highlighted in these troubles and our God's strength is being put on display in a new way so that we might recognize it and rejoice in it. And to consider these three overarching characteristics of God and imagine one of them being missing. God is perfectly good and loving. He is perfectly, immeasurably good and loving. He is perfectly, immeasurably powerful. And he is perfectly and immeasurably wise. He, he wants to do what is good. He has the ability to do whatever he wants to do. And he knows perfectly what is good. If you strip God in your imagination of any one of those characteristics, his perfect love and goodness, his perfect power and ability, his perfect wisdom to know, any one of those starts disappearing, even just one at a time. 
becomes a God we cannot hope in, a God we cannot trust. Imagine he can do anything he wants, and he knows what is good and right, but he doesn't want to do it. We can't trust him. Imagine he wants to do what is good. He knows what is good, but he's incapable. He doesn't quite have enough power to do whatever he wants to do and knows is good. Or imagine he has all the power in the universe. He's good. He wants to do good, but he's not wise enough to know what's good. We can't trust that God. We can't be still and know that he is God. He's not God. That's not our God. We have perfectly loving and good, perfectly wise and perfectly powerful God and we can rest knowing that he will take perfect care of us even as things crumble around us, even as the water comes. Fear is the natural response to threats in this world and even more so beyond this life. But we as God's children through Jesus Christ, we've been, we have been and we are being redeemed and we're being purchased back from sin. We're being saved utterly from eternal death unto eternal life. And this eternal life and hope we can experience right now. And it can impact how we interpret what we're experiencing. Go on into the sea, you mighty mountains. Tremble all you want as the ocean swallows you whole. We are God's children. Nothing can move us. Nothing can change us. He is for us. We will not fear. One commentary on Psalm 46 puts it this way. I know of no more radical profession of faith anywhere in Scripture. Such faith with its corresponding absence of fear is built on this unbelievable reality that God is our perfect refuge and perfect strength and he is present and he is perfectly helpful in every trouble. This is why Paul in Psalm 4, I'm sorry, Proverbs 4, no, Philippians 4, could say, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, bring your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This psalmist is calling us, long before Paul wrote those words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to that unbelievable, ununderstandable, incomprehensible peace. He continues this in the next stanza, telling us that we will have that peace. He says in verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, this holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations, they rage. The kingdoms, they totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So we saw that we ought to trust in the midst of turmoil, and now we're being promised peaceful joy in his presence. Notice that this is for the city of God, the place of God. And really, what matters most in that place are the people of God, the people who trust in God. That is who this promise is for, the people of God. In the Old Testament, the city of God was Jerusalem. And God's presence was indeed manifested in a unique way in Jerusalem because of the temple and because of the mediating uh, strength of the sacrificial system in the old covenant. But it's important to remember that just by having the temple didn't mean God's people were automatically safe from the raging nations all around them. Rather, it was God who manifests himself who must be trusted in fact, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7 warns the people 
Do not trust in the temple of God. Trust in the God of the temple. If you're reading through uh, the Bible uh, project reading plan with us this year, then, then not that many weeks ago you read through First um, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and we saw the, the, the two uh, kingdoms of, of, of God's people uh, divided, and we saw Assyria and Babylon coming after them, and we saw that God called them to repent and trust in him, and King Hezekiah even when the Assyrians were right outside his front door, threatening him in his own language and threatening his people in their own language so that they might understand and question God's faithfulness, where does he run? He runs to the temple. And he doesn't just say, I trust in you, temple. He says, I trust in God. He repented of his ignorance. He repented of his lack of faith, his lack of leadership. And he trusted in the Lord, and the Lord delivered them, not by their strength. He didn't say, go out and fight. He put an end to his enemies putting down hundreds of thousands of them and sending them flying away. The wages of war, of our inward and outward rebellion against God, also known as sin, is death. So we need to be careful Simply identifying ourselves with the people of Israel here. We deserve death. We deserve God's opposition. And when he utters his voice, according to this psalm, the earth melts. But Jesus, but Jesus, our true temple, our, the perfect embodiment of God, as we saw so clearly in the book of Colossians in our series recently, Jesus has not merely come to defer God's righteous wrath that makes the earth melt under his voice, or just to restrain it temporarily like the animal sacrifices did in the Old Testament, Jesus came to absorb it and satisfy God fully based on his perfect obedience, his perfect faithfulness. Repentance in the Old Testament brought a delay or deferment of God's judgment, a temporary relenting of this anger. We know this because the kingdom of Judah eventually fell, the same kingdom that that avoided judgment for a time, under temporary repentance, avoided judgment temporarily, but eventually was taken into captivity and exile. And God is willing to delay his just anger and wrath on people. But he will one day release it perfectly, even lovingly. Either on the perpetrators themselves, people who have sinned and rebelled against him, or on Jesus in their place as his blood flowed down the cross. We know this because Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know this because when he breathed his last, according to Mark, the curtain of the temple that separated sinful man from holy God was torn from top to bottom, giving full access through faith to God and his presence. Jesus is the life-giving river of Psalm 46. And this Jesus river is God's perfect presence and power over raging nations, rebellious peoples, bringing peace and joy only through repentance and faith. This Peaceful river isn't merely a contrast between the raging waters from the first stanza and the raging nations in this stanza. The Old Testament tells us that there is a river 
coming outside of even this psalm. God uses the prophet Zechariah in a similar way, saying, On that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. You'll remember a couple years back in our series in the book of John. You'll remember that these refreshing waters coming from the presence of God points to the living water that Christ's offer us by his spirit as we trust in him. Remember how Jesus told the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Later he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If anyone thirsts, Jesus says later in John, thirsts spiritually, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The river in Psalm 46 is pointing us beyond the defense of Israel against earthly enemies even beyond our own longing for physical protection, pointing us to the eternal salvation that God brings us in Jesus Christ, our God-wrath-absorbing King and Savior. It's pointing us to God's true and perfect and forever presence that's promised to us. It's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the New Testament and the perfect work and faithfulness and sacrifice of Jesus for us. Do you trust in it? God is in the midst of her. We know that God is in the midst of his church. We do not need a temple. We are the temple. God lives in us by his spirit as we trust in him. The word has become flesh. The word has dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. He was born of a virgin and he will be called Emmanuel. God with us. Do you long during a pandemic or during social and racial unrest and injustice to stand out in the world, appear unique, be perceived as unique, actually be unique, and show the world that you have peace beyond understanding in Christ who dwells in you and flows through you? The nations have always tottered, and perhaps our nation is tottering more than it ever has in our own lifetimes. As the waters of disease and the waters of instability and injustice seem to be rising, will you experience them? Will they dictate the state of your soul? Will they dictate the tone of your voice? Will they dictate what you type, what you say, how you lead your families? Or will the calming river of Jesus' eternal, life-giving, eternal, life-sustaining grace determine your attitude your perspective, your posture, your prayer, and your action in this moment. As Christians, we don't need a temple. We are the temple. So we've seen that we ought to trust him in turmoil. We've seen that we've been promised peace in his presence. And finally, here in the last stanza, this peace ought to be extended to the ends of the earth. Verse 8. Come. There's this calling, calling to someone who's not there yet. Come, come, 
Behold the works of the Lord, how, the, how he's brought desolations on the earth. What does he do? He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. For those who do not know or fear or have faith in God, these last two verses carry nothing but horror for you. But for those who know his presence in Christ Jesus and are willing to turn to him with all that you have in repentance and faith and experience his forgiveness for your rebellion, then these words bring deep and abiding hope. Nothing and no one will stand against God in the end. No disease, no danger, no institution, no insurrection, no, no injustice will survive God's just and final judgment. He will have his way. He will utter his voice. His power will end all rebellion against himself, against his people, and even inside of his people's heart. And though we saw earlier that this often meant physical deliverance from physical enemies, we know that as we trust in him, we have spiritual deliverance forever. We do not wrestle, Ephesians 6 says, against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against authorities, against we, we, we wrestle against cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we are called to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We are called to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Paul calls the church to that end, to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for him, that words may be given to Paul in opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which he is in, an ambassador in chains and for which he has declared it boldly as he ought to speak. This is our prayer too. This is a prayer that we ought to be praying for ourselves in the midst of trials and troubles. We ought to be praying that we would be gospel proclaimers. We ought to be the ones saying, come behold the works of the Lord. Now he brings desolation, warning people of the desolation to come. We should not shy away from God's righteous anger and his wrath that is coming and will be here soon for many people that you know and love. And how do we fight in this battle to end all battles? With God as our refuge, God as our strength today. The church is not to take up worldly weapons in this battle. We are to pray to our God. We are to proclaim the gospel faithfully and consistently and boldly and with courage. We ought to be ambassadors of heaven and of truth and of redemption. We ought to call people to repent and believe in Christ. We've asked this a number of times across the years since we were established as a young church just almost four years ago, who's your one? Have you forgot about your one during this pandemic? Have we used social isolation as an excuse? We have Zoom. We have FaceTime. We have phones. We have lawn chairs. And we are in New Mexico. You can sit really far away from someone and still hear them. And talk to them. Who's your one? Who are you after with the gospel right now? Who are you calling out to? That's still a part in their own lives of the raging nations that are against God. And they don't even know it. Who are you calling out to to say, come and behold the works of the, of the Lord. He's going to bring desolations. 
Every part of creation that has been fashioned by fallen men to destroy one another will be eventually destroyed by God. God is waging a war against war. God is waging a battle against battle. And one day all the weapons of war will be broken down and all the hearts that wanted to fight will be transformed. Look at this last verse of this psalm to see what God says to the warring nations in verse 10 and what we ought to be calling the warring nations too. There's quotation marks in your Bible. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is calling the warring nations and everyone in them, including ours, to sit down and shut up. He's calling everyone everywhere to listen, to understand, and to trust that he is God and that they are his and that they belong to him and that they were made to glorify him to cherish him and to worship him and they need his forgiveness and he offers it freely in Jesus Christ but that they will be dealt with either in judgment or in mercy and as for us how are we to fight this cause we are to fight this cause with the gospel on our lips and God his presence in our hearts Jesus' last words to his disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I am with you to the end of the age. Isn't this just sort of a repeat? The Great Commission is a repeat of the words in this psalm. Be still, nations. Be still, peoples. Stop fighting. Stop warring. Repent. Come to me. Stop rejecting me as God. I will be with you as you do. I will make you followers of me. I will give you peace. I will be exalted to the ends of the earth. I'll be with you as you go, as you proclaim these truths. As God's people with God's presence promised and the peace that comes with it, we are to go and proclaim God's message of salvation through Jesus. And because he has all authority, because He will be with us to the very end. We can trust that this is going to work. It's going to work. We have the promises of Scripture that it's going to work, and we do not have to be afraid. The psalm tells us not to be afraid. Jesus tells his disciples, do not be afraid. When he calls Peter, he says, do not be afraid, Peter, Simon. Do not be afraid, Simon. For from now on, you will be a fisher of men. And to his disciples, before he sent them out on mission, peace I leave to you, my peace I give you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Or in the book of Acts, when the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Can I just take these words and apply them straight to Christ's church? Christ's church, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Isn't it tempting to get caught all up in everything that's going around this world and just stop calling the nations to recognize their Savior and repent and and, and become a part of his family? That's how you ended up here. That's how we ended up in his family. Someone was faithful to come and tell us the gospel. We ought to be telling the nations, be still and know that he is God, quoting God straight to them. Perhaps this, uh, this be still and know that I'm God was cute calligraphy on your cup before. Did you know that's a missions mug you hold when you sip your coffee? 
It's a missions mug you hold because that be still and know that I am God. Though it applies to us because we've already been still in repentance and faith and we can know that he is God and it ought to drive out fear. He's actually in this text calling the nations to that who haven't yet been still and who haven't yet known that he is God. So next time you're sipping your missions mug, pray for Miss S and Miss V and the G's and the C's, and the V's, and the E's, and all the others from Christ Church who might answer the call to go out and call out in another language to the nations, be still, and know that he is God. We have the promise from God himself that this is going to work. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. John sees this. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we trust. So we live. So we send out workers knowing That even as we seek racial reconciliation, really, in this life, and the breaking down of ethnic barriers and hatred between peoples, we know that it is ultimately going to happen. And we want to taste it now. We do. We want to taste it tomorrow. We want to taste it in the coming days. We want to taste it in the next generation, our children, better than ours. But we know, ultimately, that for billions of years, we will all stand around an uncountable multitude from every tribe, language, and people singing out praises to our God. And that is what he intended all along. What man meant for evil at the Tower of Babel, where where, where we were cursed and spread out and given other languages, God meant for good to redeem people from all tribes and languages. Turn with me to the last chapter of your Bibles. Revelation 22, if you would. I'm going to wrap up here with these words. Let's see this perfect fulfillment of what Psalm 46 is calling for and anticipating. Revelation 22, verse 1 says, And the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing. For who? For healing for the nations. No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. If we skip down to the end there, verse 16, I, Jesus, he says, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. And finally, we look down to the end of the chapter. And Jesus says in verse 20, surely I am coming soon. And John replies, and we reply with, with him. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus is our river of mercy. He, his love runs perfectly to us. It must run perfectly through us to others and all the way through our neighborhoods to the nations, to the ends of the earth, 
He's coming back, and when he does, he won't just undo creation, he will redo creation. But until then, we rest in him. We rest in Jesus, by his spirit, the hope of Jesus. And we seek to advance this peace and this hope beyond ourselves, into our community, into our state, region, nation, and the world. One person at a time. Who is your one? Pray for your one. Pray that the Lord might open their eyes to see reality and truth. Pray that he might give you boldness to be an ambassador to them. Pray that he might give you opportunities to speak out and have spiritual conversations, to study the word with them, to proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. Who are you calling to be still and know that he is God? Have you been still and realized that he is God? Do you have any of this peace and hope that we've been talking about for a while now? We'd love to chat with you. If not, we'd love to talk more about who Jesus is. We'd love to talk to you about what repentance and faith looks like and what discipleship and following Jesus looks like. Please do reach out to us if you're online on Zoom, if you're here in person with us. Email us at pastors at ChristChurchABQ.com so that we can have that conversation. Or just talk to the person you know best in this room or on Zoom that invited you to Christ Church. Give them a chance to explain to you who Jesus is. Come, behold the works of the Lord. May the Lord show each of us peace as we trust in him all the more. Let's, tr- let's pray for that now. Lord, when the world and all of our unstable idols give way, Lord, Be our rock, we pray. Jesus, when the waves of life threaten to drown us and all of our hopes of our loved ones, be our anchor. When the sands of this life shift underneath us, Lord, move us more readily toward your truth, toward your Son, toward your Word, toward your Spirit. And Father, as we trust in you, Lord, give us peace, we pray, that you promised. Give us peace that confuses the world. As we pray and trust in you, give us peace that moves us forward in faith. As we pray, give us boldness to proclaim your truth in a world that rejects it. As we pray, help us to be still knowing you are God and help us to call the nations and our neighbors to be still. No more warring, no more fighting, no more backbiting, no more posturing. Only peace in knowing truly what sin is, personally, corporately, And to know truly who saves us from it. Come Lord Jesus. Come and use us. To reach more for your name's sake. And come return to undo every last effect of the fall. Until then Lord give us peace and give us faith. Be exalted among the nations. Be exalted on the earth. Lord we are still. We know that you are God. Help us to know it all the more in Jesus name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.